Good morning. A masterpiece in the making. Thank you, Christina Gebro. I don't know if Christina's here today, but Christina drew this for us as the backdrop for our series. And I think Alex talked about this a little bit last week, but you'll notice how this part of the hand is a little more fully formed and there's some detail. And as we move this way, there's less. That's what we believe we are. We believe by God's grace and by God's movement in our lives, we are a masterpiece in the making. We believe that we're that individually. In fact, Jeremiah, who was the author of the lyrics that Jordan sang in that old song, and I've got to train my son what old actually is, but what the lyrics that Jordan sang in this old song, which is you know from the 1980s, which is decidedly not old, however... <laughs> God is the, the potter forming and making, and we're the clay. We also believe that that's true of us corporately together as Gateway Community Church. We are in our, maybe our adolescence, really we're probably in the life cycle of a church, we're probably in our infancy, and we believe that we are a masterpiece in the making. We believe that God has his hand on us. And I'm going to be talking this morning a little bit about what comes next for Gateway. We have been doing this for a few weeks here on Sunday mornings through the month of September. Three weeks ago, we talked about the call of God and how incredibly important that is, how formative and how important that is for direction, for life change, for who we are, who we're becoming. Thank you for indulging me. I told a little of my own personal journey with God. And uh, how that led Diane and I and our boys to Northern Virginia. We talked about some of the specifics of God's call and how he's massaged that into our lives here. Two weeks ago, we talked about the faithfulness of God. And that gave us an opportunity, because God's always faithful. And that gave us an opportunity to talk about the first few years of our life as a church. We've begun calling it, as I tell Gateway Story, we called it Chapter 1. And during those years, a, a lot of things were up and to the right for us. It was a great time, and a time when we saw some life change, and a time when we saw a lot of you get connected uh, here at Gateway. Last week, Diane and I were away. We were suffering at the Outer Banks, and Alex York was here on Sunday morning and talked about the people of God. And that really was a foil for him to talk about brokenness. And if you've missed that message, I want to encourage you to go to gatewaychurch.org and listen to last week's message. What we wanted to do was be really honest about who we've been and be real honest with our story. And a part of that story has been the back half, the second nine of these, I don't mean the second nine years, but the back nine because Graham and I have been playing golf lately. The second half of our life together as a church, the last six or seven years, in which we've had struggles. We've had some leadership decisions, we've had some departures, we've had some circumstantial difficulties, we've had some losses. We started a building campaign that didn't work. In fact, we've had two or three things happen to us as a church that I think any one of which could have completely derailed us and killed us, and yet we're still here by God's grace. Some of you have heard me say a couple of years ago I was uh, sitting down with a guy who acts part-time as a church consultant 
And I was telling him a little bit about our story. And I was telling him some of what's happened to us in the last few years. And it was a period of at least discouragement for me and, and probably more. You know, I, I was at the period of wondering whether or not I was the right person to lead this church because I, I knew God had great plans for Gateway. I knew that he intended for Gateway to be a region-impacting masterpiece. Again, we'll talk about that in a few moments. I was having lunch with this church consultant telling him some of what's happened in the last few years, and it was incredibly life-giving lunch for me. It was one of those God times, you know, where you're looking at something a certain way, and then somebody speaks something into your life, and you go, oh, oh my gosh, yes. Of course, I'm looking at it like this, and he looks at our story like this and says, man, God must have great things for this church. And how do you figure that? He said, because after all of that, you're still here. So, awesome. Last week, Alex went through some of that and talked a, a little bit about some of parts that we understand and some parts of which we still don't understand but are seeking God about. He also told the story of Daybreak church that a few of you were a part of that closed its doors three years ago, and Alex had pastored that church for a number of years, and talked about the uh, radical disappointment and sense of failure that he personally felt uh, because of that experience. But he also talked about how out of that, and how out of some of Gateway's losses and some of Gateway's difficulties, we've seen God move. Many times in spite of those difficulties, sometimes because of those difficulties. After that, we had Justine Rowland and Jan Zacharias give a testimony about personal difficulty and discouragement and profound brokenness and loss. Yet, in spite of that, they have seen God move in their lives and sometimes even because of it. So today, we want to talk about what's next. So we're celebrating 15 years today, and today I want to give just a little picture, a verbal picture, of kind of what's next on the horizon for us, where God is leading us next. And we're going to start that by looking at a couple of passages of Scripture. And I mean, if you had to list 100 of the most rock'em, sock'em, you got to be kidding me, amazing passages of Scripture, I think these two would be on the list. In fact, for some people, both of these passages might be in the top 25. One of them might be in the top 10. We're going to look at an Old Testament passage from uh, the prophet Jeremiah where he just talks generally about God's sense of who we are and where we're headed, and I believe it's for us as well. But we'll say a word about the context of that. And then we're going to look at a really incredible saying from Jesus, something that he spoke over his small cadre of disciples, a word that he gave them that I think is still reverberating for us today. And after that, I want to give you a verbal picture of what maybe is next on deck for Gateway. A little bit big picture what our next 10 years are going to look like, at which point I'll be 97 and you guys will build a monument to me and I'll be buried somewhere under the pulpit. So every Sunday I'll expect you all to genuflect or something like that. Okay, but before we do, let's start with a word of prayer. Just to make sure that our hearts are open, our chests are wide, 
and a little bit of spiritual aerobics. Can I get you to stand with me as we pray? So, Father, our hearts are open and our chests are wide. I ask this morning that you would speak. Forgive me of my sin. Uh, Make yourself plain. And Lord, I also ask that you would give us a sense of the incredible story into which you have placed us and give us a picture of where that story is heading. We are completely submitted to you. This morning, God, we acknowledge the illusion of control that many of us nurse. Some of us more than others, but all of us nurse it. Father, and we recognize today that you're in control. We are not. So we place our lives and our time and our energy and our finances, our hearts and our minds and our wills, we place them before you and we ask you to use them. Father, thank you so much for these years at Gateway, for the privilege of having our lives intersect with one another for different periods of time. I thank you for the joy of being in community with many of these people. And Lord, I ask that you would deepen and enrich that sense. Grow us, Lord, to look more like you, to be your hands and your feet. Grow us in our love for one another and our unity with one another. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Jeremiah writes a letter, an open letter, and he senses God's hand on his mind and on his heart, and he writes an open letter to the exiles. This is the people who formerly, they used to live in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. This were, were the Jews that believed that they were God's chosen people and that God was always going to protect them. And eventually a foreign country comes in and ransacks the whole country and takes them lock, stock, and barrel and moves them to Babylon. And they are now living for a generation and a half in exile in uh, Babylon, and Jeremiah writes them this letter in chapter 29 of the prophet Jeremiah, and I'm going to be looking at verses 10 through 14, but just to set the stage for you, let me read verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, and this is what he said beginning in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So three quick points about this. Number one, our future is within God's timing. Our future is within God's timing. Things happen or do not happen depending on the movement of God. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 
God says, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back. This speaks to the sovereignty of God. That God is in control of all things, including our lives and circumstances as well. And things happen or do not happen, depending on the movement of God. You know, Jesus speaks frequently throughout his ministry about the fullness of time. I think of one instance in particular. Uh, he's at a wedding. He's just begun to gather some people around him. This is considered Jesus' first miracle. He's at a wedding and his mother comes to him and says, as mothers might do, right, boys? He says, come on, Jesus, can you turn this water into wine? Mom, leave me alone, Jesus says, but, but here's why. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. He lived with a profound awareness of God's timing, and he knew that his life, his circumstances were within. He was living within God's timing. This is so profoundly true that one of Jesus' first followers, the Apostle Paul, would write a letter later to a group of his friends and say this. I love this phrase. When the fullness of time came, at exactly the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Our future is within God's timing. Secondly, our future is in God's hands. He will fulfill it. He knows it all. He will do it. This speaks, I think, to God's faithfulness and to the provision of God. Again, same phrase. He starts off, when 70 years are completed, I will come to you. Our future is in God's hands. I know the plans I have for you, he says in verse 11. I will be found by you, he says in verse 14. I will gather you, he says later in verse 14, because our future is in God's hands. That's true of your family. That's true of your children. That's true of our life together as a community. So what kind of future is it? It's a future to prosper, not to harm. And it's a hopeful future. It's a future to prosper, not to harm, and it's a hopeful future. So does that mean for you and I as a community, for us as individuals, that everything is always going to be up and to the right? Things are always going to go exactly as planned and just get better and better. Of course not. You know enough from experience to know that's not the case. And we have ample testimony biblically to know that's never been the case for the people of God. But it does mean that there will be fruitfulness. There will be fruitfulness around and in and through our lives, and ultimately God will be victorious in us and through us. Ultimately, God will be victorious in us and through us. He will be. Because our future is a future of prospering and hope not to harm. So how does that relate to us, to our life together as Gateway? Well, now I want to go, if I can, to uh, Matthew 16. I heard somebody talk about this a few weeks ago at a leadership conference that a few of us went to, and it knocked me out. I want to share with you specifically uh, an illustration he used. But before I do, listen to this passage. I don't have time to talk about all that this passage means, but there's one particular part of it that I think we need to hear this morning before we talk specifically about what comes next for Gateway. Matthew chapter 16, this is Jesus with a group of his disciples, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, and I'll read through verse 20. And out of reverence for God's Word and this amazing little section of Scripture, that's right, stand again. 
Matthew 16, verse 13, listen to this, saddle up. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, okay, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, well, some think you're John the Baptist, who had his head cut off, but you've come back to life. Others say Elijah the prophet, who has come back to life, which is pretty stinking amazing. They're obviously thrilled by what Jesus is doing. They don't even have a category to explain it. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Okay, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I think you're the Messiah, the one who's been promised for generations. You're the son of the living God. Well, holy smokes! And Peter may have felt about like you did. Wow. Rocky, that is awesome. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't come to this on your own. What? I was, I thought I did. No, you didn't. But my Father in heaven revealed it to you, and I tell you that you are Peter. That was Jesus' nickname for him, Petra, Rocky. You're Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my gathering. I'll build my assembly. I'll build my church on that. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Look, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You've got that kind of authority, you guys. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Not yet. They're not ready. You may be seated. Okay, so let's underscore the significant point here. Jesus will grow his church and nothing is going to stop it. And all God's people said, I'm going to say it again. Jesus will grow his church and nothing is going to stop it. That's right. Jesus will grow his church and nothing is going to stop it. And all God's people said, Now you need to say amen if you believe that. Jesus will grow his church and nothing is going to stop it. Amen. Look, there have been many times and places and situations throughout history in which this didn't seem to be the case. I think of mid-20th century China when the communist revolution was just beginning to roll into China and there were Christian missionaries who'd been there for half a generation building churches, building hospitals, building orphanages and beginning to spread the message of the love and the grace of God. They were making inroads and they had people all over the world, especially in Western Europe and the United States, praying for them specifically. People like Hudson Taylor and the communist revolution rolled in and it was anti-God and and especially anti-Christian. And slowly they began to shut down Christian mission efforts and people all over the world were on their knees praying, don't let this happen, believing fervently that God would ultimately be victorious and the communist revolution won a landslide and banished all Christian missions, killed them or put them in prison or shipped them home. And the Christian church died. The message of Christ died in China, although not really because two generations later, when China began to open up, we discovered that there were millions of Christians 
The communist government had, had pushed it underground, but they had not killed it. So much so that missiologists believe today in China, 28,000 people a week are becoming Christians. I heard on NPR, this is not exactly a bastion of pro-Christian propaganda. I heard a, a special on NPR about three or four months ago where this person who was a U.S. economist, not a believer as far as I know, was basically saying, look, I don't think we need to bother with China. Let's just sit back and watch because there's a religious awakening going on in China, the likes of which we've never seen specifically among the Christian church. I think China is going to change from the inside out. Because you can't kill the church of Jesus Christ. Because He will grow it. I think of the late Middle Ages. I don't have time to tell you everything I was going to tell you, but just, let's just remember that the church had lost its bearing on its theological center. Forgiveness was being sold in a practice called indulgences. There were rumors of rampant decadence and moral failure at the highest levels of church leadership, and yet out of that was birthed the greatest theological renewal in the history of the church called the Protestant Reformation. And there was within the Catholic Church then a counter-reformation, purifying the Catholic movement as well. And I think of the first three centuries of the church, where it almost seems like there is an intelligent enemy who was doing everything he could on a global scale to stamp out this movement at its very beginning. There were periods of peace. There were periods of blind ignorance. And then there were periods of severe persecution. That persecution included Christians by the hundreds being taken into one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Roman Colosseum, and torn apart limb by limb by lions with thousands, tens of thousands of people cheering. They were brought into the center of the Colosseum and demanded that they recant And if they didn't recant their belief, the lions were released and they were literally torn apart limb by limb. What movement can survive such a thing as that? And yet, today, if you visit, this is the the image that (laughs) I want to show you. The speaker showed us a few weeks ago, knocked me out. Today, if you visit the Roman Colosseum, the bastion of the persecution of the Christian faith, this is what you'll see. There's a giant cross in the middle of the Colosseum. In the war between the Christians and the Romans, the ones without the swords won. Because Jesus will build His church and nothing will stop it. Over 20 centuries, Jesus has continuously built His church It started with 12. Okay, if you add in everybody who were hanging around the edges, maybe 120. Maybe. They were all excited. They thought they were sitting on something big. Jesus tells them on this isolated, dusty mountaintop, hey, (laughs) that's awesome, Peter. You nailed it. On that, I'm going to build my gathering and hell itself will not stop it. What in the world is he talking about? And then, a while later, he's 
marching into Jerusalem. I've got to do my march. He's marching into Jerusalem, and people are yelling and screaming, and they've got to be standing there thinking, oh, oh, this is what he's talking about. We're going to take over. Jesus, well, when we take over, can I sit on your right and to your left? What are you? No, no. That's, God determines that because our future is in God's hands. Our, our timing is in God's hands. But come on, you'll see. And then a week later, the cheers turned into jeers and they crucified him. And what are those 12 people thinking? What now? What do we do now? This is over, but it wasn't over. And today, 20 centuries later, demographers tell us there are 2.1 billion Christians alive right now, speaking almost every language in the world. Over 20 centuries, Jesus has continuously built His church, and He wants to build it here. And all God's people said, There are, in 2003, roughly... 339,000 people living in Loudoun County. We won't talk about western Fairfax County. We'll just talk about Loudoun County. The overwhelming majority of those people, of course, live in eastern Loudoun County. They project that by 2015 there will be 360,000 people living in Loudoun County. If you can do math, that's 21,000 more people moving in the next two years. By 2020, they suspect that there will be 405,250 people living in Loudoun County. I can't do the math. What is that? 40, 65, almost 70,000? Is that right? Somebody? 60, whatever you said. 60 plus thousand. Yeah. Last estimate. Over 70% of us are not in church on an average weekend. Now that's somewhat deceptive. More of us say we belong to a church, but in reality that may not be very deceptive. That may actually be a pretty accurate indication of our spiritual climate. Over 70% of us. And the number is growing Every other year when they do a census, the number is growing when someone does a survey around here. Of the average number of us who are not in church on an average weekend, for all practical purposes, this looks like one of those times when the church is faltering. And don't be fooled by the few fellowships around here that seem to be blowing up. I've told you before, since the 90s, every county in America is losing ground. The church is shrinking relative to its population in every county in America, including every one of those counties that house the largest churches in America. We're losing. But over 20 centuries, Jesus has continuously built His church and He wants to build it here. And Jesus will have the last word. So listen, you guys, it's been our practice for the last 15 years to gather on Sunday morning and do this, and it's awesome. It's a great practice. It is a God-honoring and God-ordained practice, but it's not enough. It's not enough for us to gather once a week and huddle together on Sunday morning while increasing, vastly increasing numbers of people 
are moving in around us and are desperate to hear the message of God's transforming love and His grace. Their marriages are falling apart. They're losing their children. And we have to do something about it because we have the answer. I want you to know that fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the day of the week that I examine the evidence, my children are grown. And most of my responsibility in that direction is done. So I want to give the rest of my life to this. All that's left of it, I want to give to this. I want us to see God move here or I want to die trying. So what does that mean for Gateway's next steps? Where do we go from here? So let me give you a verbal picture of the church that Gateway is becoming. And then I'm going to tell you what comes next. Here's Gateway in the future. Gateway will be a growing and equipping congregation that supports a range of worship environments and missional efforts reaching a diverse regional population. Gateway will be a growing and equipping congregation that supports a range of worship environments and missional efforts reaching a diverse regional population. So we will continue to maintain and to build both a strong sense of community and an honest and intimate connection with God through Christ through our small group network as well as through various worship environments. And we'll continue to build balanced spiritual lives through up, in, and out, living, and messaging on Sunday morning here at Gateway. And if you've been a part of us for any time at all, you ought to recognize all of those things. But I want to give you some more specific definition. When Diane and I first came to, well, actually when we were first being led to come to Northern Virginia to come here and plant a church, I imagined that this was the mid to late 90s. I imagined that what God was going to do is we would come here and we'd plant a church and we'd grow that church to be like three or four hundred people, and then we'd go plant another church. And we would grow that church, and then we would go plant another church. And during the transition of moving here and reading about the American suburbs, we didn't live in the suburbs at the time, and, and reading about the American suburbs, and then moving here and surveying you. As many of you know, we spent the first many months here knocking on homes throughout northern Virginia and surveying you and reading about the suburbs and watching churches in this area. I began to feel like, wow, the way to reach suburban America is the megachurch. So we're going to ultimately need here a facility that's going to seat 2,500 people. And we need to build a facility, something giant, so that God can fill it up and reach this area with a megachurch. I want you to know that increasingly in what I've been reading and what I've been thinking about and what I've been praying over the last decade, I've come to believe that that may be wrong. I think we had building plans and we started a building program, as many of you have heard, six, seven years ago. And that's the direction that we were heading. And it may be that God saved us. I'm increasingly convinced that some of the largest churches in America today, later in the 21st century, are going to be fantastic civic centers for cities throughout America. I don't believe that, unlike the baby boomer generation, I don't believe that my children, the next generation and the generation after that, I don't think that they necessarily think bigger is better. I think increasingly they're feeling like, you know, we want real connection, 
we want to cause and we want to be intimate with people. I think that kind of environment, the, the gigantic auditorium and a huge mega church, that's still going to continue to be a huge influence in America, of course, for decades. But I think we're going, we already are seeing that movement wane in its influence. And I think many of those places will be dinosaurs after I'm dead, but when my children are, are leading the church. And it's incumbent upon us, you guys, to not just think about ourselves, but think about what comes next. So I no longer am convinced that that's the way to reach suburban America, or not our area anyway, for Christ. An example of that is you still have influential ministers and ministries and influential centers, but do you know that the, the number of churches that are satelliting, that are planting little versions of themselves in their own area, instead of continuing to grow larger and larger, becoming more and more local, and as they get bigger, they actually get smaller. The number of churches that are doing that since 2001 has grown tenfold in America. Because increasingly, I think the church is beginning to wake up and see that's not the way to reach the next generation. So we're not going to do that. Our building plan subsequently has changed or is changing. We're in the process of changing it right now and having discussions led by Jan Zacharias and, and Tom Love, our project manager and our building team lead. We're having conversations with staff and elders and eventually we'll involve you around what this means for us as Gateway Community Church and what it might look like. But big picture, what this will mean for us is multiple congregational settings on the Gum Spring campus. When we build here, we will have multiple worship services. We're not going to have a gathering space for 3,000 of us on Sunday morning ever. It will also mean additional worship satellites. Perhaps Ashburn seems like a natural location. Perhaps Herndon seems like a natural location. We will have to improve and increase and figure out and come to understand, and the Church of Jesus Christ is just beginning to understand this now, what we do about online participation and how that fits into the life of a church. And I think that we will ultimately birth a small movement of home churches. There are some of you, I believe, sitting here this morning that should be pastoring a group of 50 or 60 people in your home, supported by the network that is Gateway Community Church. Because as we get bigger, we're going to have to get smaller. We'll also entertain a variety of missional efforts. I believe that we will sponsor children's service and evangelism efforts in various places around the world and in an ongoing and repeated way, like we're already doing in the Dominican Republic, like we may be beginning in Haiti. I think we will also support community development efforts in various places around the world, maybe two or three at the most, places where we can invest heavily and see infrastructure change, see the economy change in a small village somewhere like we have contemplated with Ina in the Dominican Republic. I think we will promote and send groups for short-term overseas mission trips by the dozens to build connection and to serve where they go. I think we will establish an ongoing community building initiative somewhere within the United States like we've begun to explore and contemplate and pray about in West Virginia. 
I think we will establish an inner city community building initiative, perhaps in partnership with some church down in the district. And I think we will engage in aggressive local service. We've talked about giving a welcome basket to all new residents in the the area. We've talked over time about beginning a program of neighborhood chaplains that would just serve and minister in their neighborhoods. We'll build classes and programming designed to meet needs in our area. We'll offer preschool. And we may re-engage with something like the Big Event Service Day, for those of you who were part of that years ago here at Gateway. But it will probably look a little different than it did years ago. And we will engage and enable congregation-wide attachments to cause-driven events because we need to be invested in those kinds of things. Perhaps two or three, no more than four, something like Stop Hunger Now or a cancer walk or whatever we feel God leading us to engage in. And in order to do all of this effectively, what we're going to need to do next is we're going to need to build a home. We need to build a permanent facility. This is why 14 years ago, God gave us an unbelievable piece of property because he knew this day was coming. And this is why he's leading us forward right now toward building, toward building our facility right here, right now. There's, I don't believe, any time for us to waste. So let me tell you just a little bit about this facility. First of all, I want you to know that what we're about to build, you guys, and this will be over the next three years, you're going to be hearing a lot about this, at least two and a half years before we open a a door on our new building. We're building a resource facility that will serve Gateway Community Church and the surrounding community. I'm going to say that one more time. We're building a resource facility that will serve Gateway Community Church and the surrounding community. So here's the thing I want you to remember that you're going to hear me say repeatedly over the next couple of years. We are not building sacred space. We're building grace space. We're building space that we want to open wide so that the community can come in for its activities and for ours and where they can experience the grace of God in a new way. They've maybe never felt the presence of God before and they've certainly never been served by people who call themselves Christ followers. We want to change that. But we're not building the Lord's house. We're not building the space that my grandmother would say, be quiet and don't run because this is God's house. We're building grace space. We're building it, first of all, for church use. And we'll use it for worship. We'll use it for children's programming, youth programming, meeting space, and administration. But we're also building it for community use, where we will build it for children's programming, and youth programming, and adult gathering spots, and activities, and classes, and meeting space. And not always ours. Sometimes those will belong to the community, those meetings, those youth events. We've said that the phase one facility should be built to accommodate a maximum of 780 people in a worship setting. And that would be approximately 450 adults and 330 children and youth. That would be 120 preschoolers. And that will be 110 elementary school kids. These are all approximates, but if you just take the demographics of Western Fairfax and Eastern Loudoun County, we're very young. We don't look like me. And a hundred youth. Let me tell you another way in which we don't look like me. 
Increasingly, eastern Loudoun County is Asian. By the year 2020, they suspect it will be almost 35% Asian. That's primarily Indian and Korean. I'm an old white guy. So you and I are going to have to figure out, you and I, hello, wake up if you've gone to sleep. You and I are going to have to figure out how to reach those communities with the message of God's love and His grace. We're also building this facility for a busy year-round rotation of gym use by church and by the community. And we're building it for a busy year-round rotation of field use by church and by community. That's right. It's still part of our design to build a baseball field and a soccer field. We're going to do this gateway because God has put it before us. Secondly, we're going to do this because Jesus is building His church. And all God's people said? And thirdly, we're going to do this because we have to. We have to. We have to reach this area with the message of God's love and His grace. This may be the most important thing that ever happens in the life of this church. Listen. Stop. This may be the most important thing that ever happens in the life of this church. Should this church still be here 200 years from today, these next three years may be the most important period that ever happened in the life of this church. I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because this past week, the staff and I have spent a week having quiet times together, and we met every morning to read through Second Chronicles. I encourage you to do that this week, and I want you to listen for how important, how significant, profoundly so for unity, for theological centeredness. I want you to listen for how significant, profoundly significant, the building of the temple was for that people for generations. And I've had the privilege of being married to Diane Dawson for 29 years. And I have had the privilege of raising three fantastic boys who suffer grief from me on Sunday mornings whenever I get an opportunity to give it to them. Amen. (laughs) But I want you to know, this is in the top five of my life. And conceivably, it could be number one. Most important thing I've ever done is lead this church in this. So, if you're in the process of signing up for Gateway, I want you to know you're signing up for this. The most important thing for many of us that we will ever do So how are we going to do it? (laughs) I don't know. We have great leadership right now. Tom Love is awesome. If you don't know Tom, speak to Tom. If you don't know our building team, get to know our building team and let them know your complaints, not me. Jan is spectacular. And what God has done in his life is unbelievable. And that's on display for us every time we get together and talk about our building. And he's our project manager right now, and he has a long history of doing development in Northern Virginia. We have great leadership. At this point, we have a pretty good plan. Although we had a great plan last time, and it didn't work. So we know how much plans are worth. We have ample evidence. So here's what we do. We do what Jehoshaphat did in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 
2 Chronicles chapter 20, Joshua's in Jerusalem and a vast army is coming against him and his spies come and tell him, Joshua, this is who's coming, this nation, this nation, this nation. We have no shot. Joshua calculates real quickly and he says, you're right, we don't have a shot. And so he calls the people together and they seek God and they pray. At the end of his prayer, it's a beautiful prayer, 2 Chronicles 20, this is what Joshua says at the end of his prayer, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put our eyes on him. I don't have any idea how we're going to pay for this building. But God knows. And our future is within God's timing, and it is in God's hands, and it is a prosperous, hopeful future. So we're going to stand on that over the next many months. And we're going to seek God and put our eyes on him. Over the next year, especially over the next six months, I'm going to be calling us as a congregation to times of prayer, and for those of you who are up for it, times of fasting. We're going to seek God together. We're also going to provide some specific nights of prayer, prayer and praises, once a month for the next several months. The first one is October 8th. There will be no child care. I'm sorry about that. And we're going to meet at the office. But I'd love to see many of you come. October 8th at the office, we're going to seek God We don't know what to do, but our eyes are going to be on him because he does. He's placed this before us, and I believe with all my heart what Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. And so God is going to get this thing done because Jesus Christ has continually, over the last 20 centuries, built his church, and he's not going to stop now. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are full of thanks. Lord, I ask that you would show us how to put our eyes on you. How to seek you fully. How to open ourselves up to you completely. Move in us, Lord. We need you. We know that you've placed this before us, and we also know we've got a direct experience. We know we cannot get it done without you. We ask you to move. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.